die ik ook nu wel herken als ik zo kijk room, boven de zaal. I can see a number of familiar faces, including online Dat om te beginnen. Ja, en dat moment is nu zo'n beetje wel aangebroken. Dan ga ik nu beginnen met de echte zitting. Now we will begin Dames en heren, goedemiddag. De zitting in de strafzaak in Brussel wordt vandaag voortgezet. En vandaag doet de rechtbank Den Haag uitspraak in die strafzaak. Er zal de rechtbank op 9 maart 2020 constateren dat dit Zo zullen even zoveel hebben uitgekeken Dat zal ook de reden zijn dat vandaag zoveel belangstellenden Niet alleen zijn vanzelfsprekend op de justitie, de verdediging van Pulato en leden van het maar ook veel nabestaanden en heel veel en er is veel belangstelling. Ik heet u allemaal welkom vandaag bij de zitting hier in de zittingszaal en in de andere zittingszalen Dat geldt ook voor de kijkers via de livestream, die vandaag niet alleen in het Engels, maar ook in het Russisch Voordat de rechtbank haar beslissingen zal meedelen, stelt de rechtbank vast dat het vandaag bij de hervatting van het onderzoek van de testiteit op 22 september 2022 geen Wel zijn aanwezig de vraagstelling van Pulatus en zij hebben de rechtbank op voorhand gezegd dat zij uitdrukkelijk gemachtigd zijn. Er zijn zaken daarvan op tegenspraak voorgezet. Drie andere verdachten, Gierkin, Dubinsky en Tjartinko, zijn op de hoogte van de zitting van vandaag en hun zaken worden bij het gesprek voorgezet. De verdediging, het Openbaar Ministerie en de rechtsbijstandsdienst hebben voorafgaand aan deze zitting laten weten dat wij niet meer het bosje willen voeren. En ik ga ervan uit dat dit nog steeds zo is. Ik kijk even naar de rechtbank heeft vandaag de zitting in dezelfde samenstelling als op 22 september 2022. Zij het dat vandaag alleen de drie rechters zijn in deze strafzaak wijzen. En daarnaast natuurlijk as well, of course, as the clerks. de rechtbank sluit nu het onderzoek ter rechtszitting en met deze uitspraak wordt de behandeling van deze strafzaak door de de rechtbank heeft meermaal gesproken over het bijzondere karakter van deze strafzaak en gezegd mag worden dat deze strafzaak in case, de bijzondere momenten uitwisbare impression. Tegelijkertijd is deze strafzaak ook een strafzaak die gewoond volgens de regels van de Nederlandse law. En op grond van die regels wijst de rechtbank vandaag de vonnissen die nu in het openbaar worden uitgesproken. Zoals gebruikelijk bij ongelijke vonnissen zal de rechtbank de volledige en letterlijke tekst van de vonnissen niet voorlezen. 
this member of the military can claim immunity and can therefore not be prosecuted for the use of the weapon or its consequences. An armed conflict might be international in nature from the start, if it is a conflict between two states. But a non-international conflict, which appears to be a state and a group, can be considered an international conflict later if an other state is in fact behind the group in question. The court will examine the situation in Ukraine prior to 17th of July 2014, step by step. The court judges that the armed conflict in Ukraine between the Ukrainian army and, and organized separatist groups from April 2014 was so intensive that it can be called a non-international armed conflict. A non-international armed conflict of this kind can nevertheless be deemed an international armed conflict. For example, if another state actually has what we call overall control over a combatant group, such that the state is thus party to the conflict. In this case, the question is whether the Russian Federation had overall control over the DPR in 2014. The court judges that this was the case for a number of reasons. A number of the then DPR leaders are Russian citizens. Some of them, furthermore, have a Russian military background. For example, defenders Girkin and Dubinsky. Some DPR leaders had very close ties with the Russian Federation. Taps telephone calls often talk about getting in touch with high-level persons in the Russian Federation which they refer to as Moscow, or even more specifically, the Kremlin. For example, Borodai, the DPR's Prime Minister, was in almost daily contact with Sokov from June to August 2014, when Sokov was a close advisor of Putin. According to Borodai, Sokov was our man in the Kremlin. There was also contact between DPR leaders and Sokov regarding several DPR ministerial appointments. A telling example of this is a recorded telephone call dated 16th of May 2014, where Borodai says that the DPR government is to be announced and that Moscow has surprised him by appointing him Prime Minister. In addition to these close ties, the Russian Federation has also provided support in this conflict. Organizations such as the OSCE and Human Rights Watch report supplies, arms and money sent to separatists from the Russian Federation. This includes convoys with military-grade weapons crossing the border. It is also the picture that emerges from intercepted telephone calls. Regarding the question of whether there was overall control, it is addition relevant whether the Russian Federation took on a coordinating role and issued instructions to the DPR. And there is ample evidence that this is the case.
Not only did they report to Moscow about the situation on the ground, such as setbacks and successes, but there's also a number of tapped telephone calls that reveal that the Russian authorities were involved in planning. On the 11th of July 2014, for example, Sokov tells the DPR Prime Minister Borodai that he has spoken with the people who are in charge of this whole military story. And that they have said that they are making preparations and will get things moving. In addition, there is talk of Moscow's role regarding specific operations. In one intercepted phone call, 4th of July 2014, talking about the Ukrainian city of Sloviansk, a DPR leader says that Moscow does not want Sloviansk to surrender. In the absence of actual support, however, Defendant Gierkin nevertheless abandoned Sloviansk and moved his headquarters to Donetsk. On the 21st of July 2014, that is four days after the MH17 crashed, Borodai called a Russian telephone number. Borodai wants to speak to the boss because he needs advice and instructions about how to handle the MH17 disaster. For example, the refrigerated wagons and the black box. Borodai also asks for lines to take at a press conference. Borodai adds that he assumes that our neighbours will have a thing or two to say about the matter. The fact that Borodai here talks about our neighbours and asks for the boss, although he himself is top man in the DPR, confirms, in the court's view, that the boss he is asking for is a representative of the Russian authorities. A number of organisations talk about artillery fire on Ukrainian territory, carried out from Russian Federation territory from early July 2014. Witnesses have also made statements regarding Russian equipment with Russian troops crossing the border, firing artillery and then withdrawing home again. In a tough telephone call of 17th of July 2014, Defendant Pulatov says that Russia can go right ahead, and Dubinsky replies that Russian is, Russia is going to bombard Ukrainian positions from its own side. This indicates that they were coordinating their military actions. The court has also ascertained that the Russian Federation provided financial assistance to the DPR, supplied and trained troops, and supplied arms and other goods. Thereafter, the Russian Federation played a, had a decisive influence on high-level appointments in the DPR from the mid-May 2014 and was involved in coordination of military actions. It also undertook military actions of its own on Ukrainian territory. These factors are set out more fully in the ruling and they bring the court to the conclusion that from mid-May 2014 onwards, there was, the situation was that the Russian Federation had overall control over the DPR. The court therefore judges that from mid-May 2014 onwards and still on the 17th of July 2014 there was an international armed conflict taking place between Ukraine and the DPR on Ukrainian territory in which the DPR was under Russian Federation control. 
So what does this mean for the situation of the defendants and the possibilities to prosecute them? As I said, only members of the military of a combatant party in an international armed conflict can, in some circumstances, claim immunity. The question, therefore, is whether the DPR and its members can be seen as part of the Russian military. For this, the Russian Federation needs to acknowledge the DPR as belonging to it and take responsibility for how its combatants under the DPR control behave and act. And the court finds that this is not the case. The Russian Federation still to this day denies that it has any involvement or control of the DPR in that period. The defendants too have publicly denied being part of the Russian Federation military at that time. The DPR combatants, and thus including our defendants, cannot be regarded as part of the Russian Federation's military. And for that reason alone, they have no right to participate in the hostilities, let alone any right to immunity from involvement in the MH17 crash. In conclusion, there is no question of jurisdiction being restricted by international law. This leads me to alleged breaches of legal rules and due process. But a lot of defence have said that prosecution has forfeited its right to prosecute. The defence lifts num numerous breaches of legal and procedural rules and principles of due process, which, in their view, are so grave as to mean that the prosecution have forfeited their right to prosecute and must be ruled inadmissible. When assessing possible procedural errors, the court considers the overall fairness of the trial. In other words, has the trial been fair as a whole? Alone, those errors of process which have a direct impact on the right to a fair trial can lead to the gravest consequences in law, which is to say the prosecution is deemed inadmissible. What is required is the court investigates the charges independently, impartially and openly, and without prejudice, and that the defendant was able to request investigations and has been able to defend himself satisfactorily against the charges. The court will now discuss five issues raised by defence as reasons why the prosecution should not have been allowed to prosecute. These are publishing investigation findings, summons without previous notice, a one-sided attitude on the part of prosecution, the way in which the case file was compiled, and the right to, to cross-examine witnesses. First of all, that's about what Egypt and the Public Prosecution Service stated quite categorically in press conferences before the start of these criminal proceedings about what happened to Flight MH17. On the 19th of June 2019, the names and photos of the four defendants in these proceedings were linked to all of this. The court was aware of these and other media statements and explicitly mentioned them on the first day in court. 
but the court stayed away from this media attention and has not been influenced by it. When it comes to the question of whether or not the prosecution in press conferences crossed certain boundaries, the court considers that informing the general public and the relatives about an intended prosecution in and of itself is an important and justifiable purpose. Certainly in a case with the scope and a societal impact of that of flight MH17. But these statements uh, of the prosecution and the jit about the fate of flight MH17 and the names of the suspects being announced could have helped shape uh, public opinion about these criminal proceedings. That is why, including the personal particulars of uh, suspects and showing their photos at press conferences, is a potential infringement of their right to privacy and therefore a procedural error. According to the court, it is not immediately clear that this information needed to be shared with the general public and could not have been shared with the relatives in some other way rather than a press conference broadcast worldwide. At the same time, the court notes that when it was announced the suspects would be prosecuted, the suspects were also put on wanted lists, meaning their identity would have been revealed either way for a simple internet search immediately led to the names and photos of the suspects. In the court's opinion, that infringement of the suspect's privacy was therefore limited. Also, it did not affect the fairness of the trial. That opinion is not changed by the interview with NRC Handelsblatt, a leading Dutch newspaper, a few days after the closing arguments with the leader of the team of public prosecutors investigating the MH17 crash. In that interview, various very categorical statements were made that might even be called a nuanced or oversimplified about ongoing criminal proceedings outside of court, but at heart, they were really only repeats of the closing arguments of the prosecution that had been presented just prior to the interview. The categorical and unnuanced statements of other public officials cannot be held against the prosecution. These statements also did not influence the opinion of the court in this case. Then there is the application uh, launched online by the prosecution on the 18th of May 2022. In this publication, you will be able to read, hear and see which pieces of evidence, amongst others, are contained in a criminal file. The website reads. We have already expressed our surprise about the launch of that application here in court because of the timing and because of how it was put online. The prosecution has failed to provide any explanation on the subject in court. Because of the way it was set up and desi designed, the court feels the application was not a spontaneous instrument, quite the contrary. It took a lot of time, effort and preparation. And it was wrong to share, amongst other things, pieces from the criminal file amongst a wider audience at a carefully planned moment and in a carefully planned manner because the file was still sub judice. The prosecution knows this and according to the court therefore deliberately acted contrary to that principle. In addition, a restriction on the relatives taking uh, cognizance had only been lifted less than two hours 
before the application was put online. But it was still subject to conditions uh, to do with a careful administration of justice. Publication therefore blatantly disregarded an express decision of the court. Also, the application contains no nuance at all, nor any reference to the extensive defences and arguments presented by the defence about, amongst other things, the usefulness and evidentiary value of documents included in the application. We therefore hold that the, pro that the prosecution cannot reasonably argue that the publication of this application served any purpose under criminal law, and certainly not that the publication was the result of a reasonable and fair weighing of interest. It was unnecessary and seriously distract, distracts from the magisterial approach which we would expect of the prosecution. The launch of this application therefore goes against the principles of due process. Nevertheless, the court did not let this affect its open-minded and unbiased assessment and judgment of the file and the charges. And it did not impact the fairness of proceedings as such. The court will therefore not attach the gravest consequence to this error, which would have been a bar to prosecution. Then the second subject that the defence has pointed to, that was the immediate summonsing of Pulatov, without him being notified of any suspicions against him prior to that. They've called this a summons without prior notice, and Pulatov's position could have been considered in the decision to prosecute. Also, in that case, he could have had a counter-investigation done via the investigating magistrate rather than via a public hearing, for which an assessment framework more beneficial to him would have been used. However, the consequences of that immediate summons listed by the defence do not lead to the conclusion that there has been an unfair trial. The prosecution is allowed to serve a summons without a suspect being notified in advance. And contrary to the defence's assertions, the court did not use a different standard in assessing requests for investigation than the investigating magistrate would have. If anything, it applied the uh, broad relevancy standard. The court also fails to see how the defendant could have been prejudiced by having to make his uh, request for investigation at a public hearing rather than in the privacy of the investigating magistrate's chambers. Also, he himself failed to use opportunities to not have his case be heard publicly. For example, the defence could have asked the public prosecutor to withdraw the summons. Or, on the very first day in court, it could have asked the court for an open referral to the investigating magistrate in order to present a request for investigation to that investigating magistrate. Also, the defendant did not object to the summons without prior notice in the context of a preliminary defence prior to the hearing on the merits, but only raised the issue much later in pleading, so after the hearing on the merits. Furthermore, the defence was given the opportunity, and they fully used it, to present requests for investigation to the court in order to be able to present any defence it deemed necessary to the results of the criminal investigation.
Also, the court has found that Pulatov was examined after the sermon, but before the hearing in court started. During that examination in the Russian Federation, uh, Pulatov didn't immediately seize the chance to tell his side of things in order to try and prevent public hearing. On the advice of his Dutch lawyers, he there said he invoked the right to remain silent. Pulatov did say that he wanted to make a statement before a Dutch court, but in the end he had not done so. Pulatov chose video messages as his way of contributing, without indicating he felt curtailed in his rights or wronged because of it. All of that considered together leads us to the conclusion that the immediate summons does not constitute a breach of procedural rules. Thirdly, the defense has argued that the prosecution did not always have an objective and critical eye during the investigation. The heart of this defense is that the prosecution let itself be led by statements by the Ukrainian security services, the SBU, statements made immediately after the downing of MH17. Also, a lot of evidence in this case was acquired from or via the SBU. But the court holds a different opinion. The prosecution has done its own investigation, and insofar as they used evidence acquired by or via the SBU, the prosecution has explicitly recognized its origins. That has led to caution and investigations to verify and validate evidence. The fourth subject is about the defense still not being sure whether all relevant documents have been included in the case file. It's true that the prosecution, even after the court repeatedly and explicitly brought the matter to its intention, uh, attention, wrongly did not always conclude of its own accord that certain documents were relevant and should be included. The prosecution then left that decision up to the court, even though the prosecution should have made that decision itself. But the question of what is relevant also requires more reasons given by the defence, beyond simply asserting that the investigation file might contain exculpatory info, because whether something is relevant also depends on the fact of what the um, defendant is saying about the suspicions. And if that argument is missing or has not been made sufficiently concrete, then the relevance of a certain document becomes much more difficult to assess. And such concrete elements were mostly lacking up to the oral arguments, so they could not be considered in the decision of whether or not certain data or docs were relevant. In addition, the defense received, or was able to inspect, a great many documents from the investigation file that were not part of the case file. And the defense only cited a few of those documents in their oral arguments and asked even fewer of those documents to be added to the file. So apparently they contained little that was of relevance. Given everything uh, I've just said and looking at the broad scope of the case file, the court is convinced the file contains all the relevant documents necessary to judge the case. The fifth subject, finally, 
is the assertion that Kulatov's defense, in view of the very small number of requests for investigation granted in the context of the large number of witnesses and experts in this complex and long-running investigation, has been so restricted in the exercise of its rights that this constitutes a breach of the right to a fair trial. Also, the defense says they were very much restricted in their right to examine any interviews they were allowed. With regards to the restrictions imposed in the interviews granted and held, the court sees no reason to rule that the investigating magistrate imposed more restrictions than were necessary to protect statutory interests. And more important than the number of requests granted or denied is the question of whether or not the court will use certain statements for evidence, and if so, how they relate to the other means of evidence. This defense can therefore not lead to a finding of there being a bar to prosecution. So what does all of this mean for the right to prosecute of the prosecution? Two def defects remain. First of all, that the prosecution and the JIT in press conferences spoke quite categorically about what they felt happened to flight MH17 and of their suspicions against the uh, suspect shown and named and in addition the launch of the application which included the quote-unquote evidence of what happened to flight MH17 and who was responsible for the downing. First of all uh, the court would like to say that they weren't affected by these defects and the defense wasn't restricted in its possibilities for presenting a defense and all in all we cannot call these proceedings unfair. In addition the defects viewed in connection with each other and compared to the huge scope of the investigation and the importance of the case do not justify the most severe sanction of a bar to prosecution. The court will now discuss the evidence that it used for its judgment. First of all, we will talk about the causes of the crash and then any role the accused may have played. On the 17th of July 2014, in Ukraine, flight MH17 crashed. The crash killed 283 passengers and 15 crew members. The court considers it has been proven lawfully and beyond doubt that flight MH17 crashed because it was hit by a Buk missile fired from an agricultural field near Pervomaisky. There is ample evidence justifying this conclusion. Important evidence for the conclusion that a missile was fired from near Pervomaisky are photos of a smoke trail, also called an inversion trail. This evidence is supported by the statement of witness M58 and by satellite images of that firing site. The picture painted by these means of evidence is also fully reflected by intercepted phone conversations and on video footage, but also the bow tie shaped warhead fragment of a book missile that was found in the body of a crew member and pieces of a book missile that were found in a groove and a frame of the plane are proof that it was a book missile that was fired.
the results of an investigation done by the Dutch Forensic Institute and the Belgian Royal Military Academy also constitute proof for that. The court will shortly go into this means of evidence in further detail, but first it would like to say the following. The case file contains dozens of reports of experts, and these experts, registered or not, were appointed by the investigating magistrate. The investigating magistrate, before appointing them, did not just determine their expertise on the subject, but also their independence and objectivity. The court considers the representative of the Russian Almas Ante as an expert on the subject, on the one hand, since Almas Ante is, of course, the designer and producer of book weapon systems. On the other hand, Almas Ante is a state company affiliated with the authorities of the Russian Federation. And it is exactly these authorities who deny any involvement in the conflict in eastern Ukraine and any involvement in the MH17 crash. In that context, the authorities of the Russian Federation have repeatedly presented materials supposedly showing they weren't responsible for the MH17 crash, but rather the Ukrainian authorities were. However, this so-called proof repeatedly proved forged or showed clear evidence of tampering. For that reason alone, Armas Ante's affiliation with the authorities of the Russian Federation detracts from the persuasiveness of its assertions and that of its representative. In addition, Armas Ante as an organization also has an interest in the outcome of the investigation because sanctions were imposed on them in connection with MH17 and the court therefore does not see the Armas Ante representative as an objective and independent expert as referenced in the law. That does not mean that the findings and conclusions of this representative are without value for that reason alone. However, to persuade the court of the accuracy of its findings, Armas Ante should not simply have made assertions but should have substantiated its findings in a clear, insightful and verifiable manner. They failed to do so. The sole reference to its years of experience and many reports about their own investigations are not sufficient to make the court doubt the results of the expert investigations uh, which were done by experts uh, that were objective and independent. The reports from an American agency submitted by Kolatov's defense did not manage to sway the court either. What these reports basically come down to is that based on the starting points and findings of Armas Ante, they repeat the conclusions drawn by Armas Ante without any reasons given or independent investigation. And as will become clear, these reports therefore have no added value. The court will now address the evidence in more detail. Relevant to the evidence 
that flight MH17 was shot down by a book missile fired from a farm field near Pervomarsky are, as stated, the various pictures of a smoke trail or an inversion trail. The person who took the first series of photos was heard as a witness, and he stated that the photos taken on the 17th of July 2014 at 16.25 were taken from a balcony of his house in Torres. The pictures, the camera and the memory card were investigated by the NFI. There were no clues found that the image on the relevant photos was tampered with. The time at which the photos were taken was verified by the Royal Netherlands Meteorological Institute, KNMI. Based on the investigation into the landscape characteristics on the pictures, the court concludes that these pictures were taken in Torres and that the inversion trail originated from the direction of Pervomaisky. These conclusions, combined with the time at which the photos were taken, and based on the position of MH17 at the time it fell off the radar, justify the assessment that these Photos show the inversion trail of a missile that was fired from the direction of Pervomaisky towards MH17 at around the time that MH17 crashed. Moreover, the file comprises two other pictures of an inversion trail that were found on the internet. The person who took these pictures has not been identified. However, it was established that the photos would have been uploaded on the 17th of July 2014. And as so-called file modification date, 17 July 2014, 1622 would apply. The landscape characteristics on these photo locate a photographer in the center of Schnitze and point clearly to an inversion trail towards the south where Pervomaisky is located. These pictures were also investigated by KNMI. The pictures taken in Torres and Schnitzner individually only indicate a direction of the origin of the inversion trail. However, considered in coherence and taking into account the slope in the landscape, these directions intersect slightly to the west of Pervomaisky. In addition, the court used the statements of witness M58. He's an important eyewitness and made very elaborate and detailed statements. M58 stated that he was part of the reconnaissance group commanded by the accused Kachenko. On the afternoon that MH17 was shot down, he was located at a checkpoint near to an intersection on the road from Schnitze to Marinovka. It is demonstrated by the location where MH58 M58 has drawn the crossroads on the satellite images, image combined with the drawings he made of the crossroads and what he said in his statements. It appears to be a crossroads on the T0522, slightly to the west of Pervomaisky. On that afternoon, M58 was at some time in a field in the northwestern corner of that crossroads. He was near to the tent or the tents that had been erected in that field and heard something drive on the unpaved road to the south of the field where he was located. He described the sound as that of caterpillar tracks of a tank. A bit later, he heard a loud explosion and noticed a missile 
zigzagging and leaving a smog trail behind. He observed how the aircraft fell down after the missile exploded. Next, when he walked to the crossroads and looked at the adjacent field, he noticed a Buktela that was short one missile. The Buktela next passed him on the crossroads. And the court considers that the field of which M58 states that he observed a book missile that was missing and missile is exactly the area where the smoke trail originated on the pictures that we've just discussed from Torres and Schnitze. The defense argued based on a report of a legal psychologist that the statements of M58 are unreliable due to a number of defects in these statements. Together with the PPS, the court finds that such examples of alleged defects are so often based on an incorrect representation of the statements themselves or the circumstances in which said statements were made that the court must disregard the conclusions of the report. However, this does not entail that the court shouldn't discuss the reliability of witness M58 and his statements itself. In this regard, the court would like to remark the following. The accuracy of the statement by M58 with regard to his participation in combat on the side of the DPR could be verified on many topics, not merely by means of public information, but also by means of information that has not been shared with the public. And that is why the court sees no reason to doubt his statement about said participation. This also applies to his presence on the relevant crossroads on the day that MH17 crashed. However, this does not mean that there is no reason to doubt the essence of his account on what happened that day, for M58 stated inconsistently on various uh, topics in various interviews. The court explained elaborately in the judgment why it has found no clue that these inconsistencies were caused by intentional inaccuracies when she studied his statements and the way in which the contacts with MH58 were conducted. MHM58 therefore did not make untruthful statements. Nevertheless, the court still has to verify whether the inconsistencies in his statement would affect the evidential value of the essence of his story, as his memory may have failed him. The court did observe that M58 often addressed matters that he had already made statements about in earlier interviews and then corrects these. The, due to the lapse of time and the hectic situation, the court does not deem it surprising that M58 is somewhat insecure. This requires details of which he did not know at the time that they would become relevant at the time when he observed them, such as the time at which in the exact location where he was positioned, the exact distance between the Buktela and the crossroads and the altitude of the aircraft. On the one hand, this means that the evidential value of the statement of M58 with regard to such details is not 
huge, but on the other hand, that such inconsistencies do not affect his statements with regard to observations that must have had a much more profound impact due to their nature. And this regards the actual firing of a book missile. And the joy about hitting a military aircraft and the transition of that joy into horror when it appeared quite soon that a passenger aircraft had been hit instead of a military aircraft. About such impactful matters, he was never in doubt. And this is why the court holds that, therefore, the statements by M58 are reliable. Neither is using M58 statements contrary to fair trial. For the defense was able to interview this witness for several days at the investigating magistrate. And the defense and the PPS have had ample opportunities to ask questions to him. M58 also answered all of the questions posed to him. Some limitations applied to the execution of the interview, but those were required to protect the witness. Moreover, the statement of M58 is not isolated in the total evidential structure, for the evidence also comprises validated pictures, videos, intercepted conversations, transmission mass data, and expert reports. The file includes an analysis of satellite images of the farm field, and it supports the conclusion that the farm field indicated by M58 was the firing site. From a comparison of the satellite images of this farm field made on the 16th of July to those made on the 20, 20th and 21st of July demonstrate that various changes have occurred in that period that may indicate the intermediate firing of a missile. This pertains to a dark colored triangle patch in the northwestern corner of the field and the journalist who observed and filmed that part of the field on the 22nd of July 2014 talked about fire traces. And firing a book missile causes a flame jet that may cause a fire. Further down, you see tracks into the discolored patch that are over three meters wide, similar to those of a book teller. These traces are visible in the corner designated by KNMI based on the wind direction as the most likely firing site in that part of the field. And that northern side of the field also meets the requirements to deploy a book teller. The ground is accessible, it was secured by a separatist checkpoint, and it's free of high voltage cables. Beside, it is the highest elevation in a five kilometer radius and hardly visible due to lines of trees. When targets fly high, the distance of a book teller to a line of trees is less relevant and the line of trees provides direct cover. Added to that, it was discussed in several intercepted telecoms between the separatists in the morning of the 17th of July. A book was discussed that is on its way and must go to Pervomaiske. And the court holds this to be very convincing evidence that this field in Pervomaiske was indeed the, the firing site and that a book missile was used. 
The evidential value of the substance of these conversations is enhanced once more by the fact that the image revealed from the conversations about the origin of the book teller and where it should go was confirmed by the transmission mast data. In short, relocation of the telephones of those persons that were charged with the transport as was evidenced by the intercepted conversation, matches the route that Bookteller traveled. In various cases, Bookteller was also captured in footage at a time that matches this route up close to Pervomaisky. As such, the Bookteller was moved eastbound from Donetsk by means of Mayivka, Sures and Torres towards Snitsen. In this respect, the court points out the picture taken on the Ilitsha Avenue in Donetsk, the video recorded near to the motel roundabout in Donetsk, the video near Mayivka, the video in Tsures, and the picture and video in Torres that show how a booktailer is transported every time on the same particular flatbed trailer, Volvo flatbed trailer with a white cabin, towards the direction of Schnitze. Moreover, footage from Donetsk clearly shows that the Boktila was carrying missiles with a white head. And on the video in Majivka, the court observed that there were four missiles at the time. The picture and video of a Boktila heading from Schnitze southbound towards Performarski displays a Boktila that was not carried on a flatbed trailer, but was driving self-propelled at the time. And this indicates that the Boktila was not far from the intended deployment site. At the time when this video was recorded, the Boktila was in reality only a few kilometers from the relevant field near Pervomaisky. The court noticed on a video recorded in Luhansk in the early morning of 18 July 2014 that one missile is missing. And by means of the statement of witness S21, intercepted conversations and transmission mass data, the court established that this is the very same book teller. This footage has been verified to the extent possible as regards the location and the timing and scrutinized for authenticity. No traces of tampering were found. Finally, the court bases its conviction that a book missile was fired towards MH17 and actually shot down MH17 on the findings of the investigated fragments found on the disaster site that originate from a weapon. And the court took into account fragments that are both specific to a specific weapon and at the same time have an evident relationship to the cause of the crash. For instance, because they were found in bodies of victims or were stuck, were stuck in pieces of wreckage and consequently must originate from the weapon. In the body of one of the crew members, a specific fragment was found. The court itself recognized in this fragment a clearly incomplete bow tie shape. Moreover, the investigation showed that this fragment can hardly be distinguished in element composition or cannot or hardly be distinguished from other 
fragments and belongs to the same group as the other fragments that were retrieved from bodies and pieces of records. It also shows that these fragments cannot or hardly be distinguished from bow-type-shaped fragments from one of the reference bug warheads of the new type. The defense argued, with reference to investigation by Almas Antai, that the, that the fragment of the sand cannot be that of a unique bow-type-shaped fragment because it is too light to qualify. However, the court considers that the arena test demonstrated the arena test performed with a full missile with a buck warhead demonstrated that warhead fragments will break down in smaller pieces after detonation. Some of these bow shaped fragments with an original weight of 8.1 gram only reached a weight of 2.5 grams after detonation. As such, the fragment that was found with a weight of 5.7 grams was also a bow-tie-shaped fragment that is unique for a warhead of the new type. A second fragment that the court deemed relevant is the green lump that was found embedded in the groove of the left cockpit window. This lump was investigated and it was found that it matches the base plate of both both the new and old type of book missile. In view of the many similarities in appearance that was, were also noticed by the court itself, there is no doubt whatsoever that a green lump is part of such base plate. This also applied to a metal part that was found coiled and embedded in a frame. This metal part too was investigated for outward appearances such as shape, stripes and traces. It was concluded that it matches a sliding panel of both of these types of book missiles. These observations were also made by the court itself, and the composition of this part matches a specific part of both the old and new type of book missile. The dynamic impacted lump and the metal part are unique to a book missile system according to the expert of RMA. In view of where they were found, the bowtie shaped fragment, the lump, and the metal part of the weapon must indeed be from the weapon that hit MH17. These objects do identify the weapon as a book missile based on their outward appearance in coherence with their metallurgical composition. None of the fragments that were related to the cause of the crash point towards any other weapon than a book missile and therefore the court adheres severe evidential value to these pieces of evidence. In summary, the court considers that each of these sources, the photos from Torres and Nietzsche, the statements by M58, the satellite images, the intercepted conversation, the transmission mass data, the photos and videos of a book teller on the 17th and 18th of July 2014, and the findings with regard to the fragments in, found in the body, the objects in the frame and the groove of the aircraft in itself constitute strong evidence conclude that MH17 was actually hit by a book missile. But in cohesion and from an interrelated perspective, the court does not see any possibility for reasonable doubt whatsoever. The accused Pulatov gave an explanation 
with regard to the telecoms that these were intended to mislead and to make the enemy believe that a Boktilla was present when this wasn't the case actually, at least that the Boktilla would not be operational. The court holds this totally implausible. The evidence used demonstrates that indeed there was a Boktilla with missiles heading for Pervomaisky and it did indeed fire a book missile from a farm field that handed down MH17. Therefore, this defense was more than overruled by the evidence. Some of the accused and other persons suggested outside the courtroom that evidence such as footage and audio material were tampered with. And the court remarks in this respect that it does not tolerate to merely a single picture, a video or an interceptor concept, but a multitude of all types of evidence that was often available really fast. The court holds it inconceivable that such a multitude of evidence of various, various natures could have been fabricated so fast, so sound and so consistently without leaving any trace. For this evidence was scrutinized by various experts from different fields, from different countries that were not engaged in the conflict and no trace of tampering was discovered. Lots of defense have told us that the book missile must have been launched from a location near Zaroshinsky. Here they refer to the findings of Almazante reports and what the Almazante representative statements to the subject on, on the subject to the investigating judge. The court can only give credence to Almazante's findings if they are verifiable and based on clear, transparent and comprehensible reasoning. The court, however, finds that the experts of the Dutch Aerospace Centre and the Belgian Royal Military Academy agree that Almas Ante's assumptions and methods are not transparent. Thus, Almas Ante's methods and assumptions, indicating a launch area near, near Zereshevsky, are not cl clear, transparent or comprehensible to other experts and therefore cannot be verified by the court. For this reason, Almas Ante's findings and those of his representative are entirely unconvincing. The American Bureau, named earlier, has also mentioned the launch site calculated. Their reports, they expressed criticism of the NL, NLR and RMA's findings. They also refer to Almazante's findings and assumptions and assert without giving any evidence that Almazante's conclusions are correct. The reports from the American Bureau do not, however, reveal why they believe these assumptions, findings and conclusions are correct and do not therefore confirm the requisite credibility on Almazante's calculations. The question remains whether it is nevertheless possible that the launch area is to be seen near Zaroshensky and whether other scenarios than the main scenario have been sufficiently investigated. In addition to the main scenario, the JIT did investigate other scenarios extensively but rejected them for several convincing reasons. 
be that as it may. The other possibilities have already been ruled out by legally valid convincing evidence which the court considers incontrovertibly and conclusively prove that it was a book missile that was launched from an agricultural field never near Povomysky and which downed MH17. There is therefore no need to exhaust other lines of inquiry. Finally, Pulatov's defence referred to the report from the American Bureau and observed that that says a more plausible alternative scenario is that it was a Ukrainian book teller that must have launched a book missile somewhere to the east of Zaroshensky, aiming at an Air India aircraft which had crossed the border from the Russian Federation to the east. The court first notes that this scenario has already been disproved by the evidence discussed earlier and therefore does not constitute an alternative scenario compatible with the evidence. But there are further reasons why this fantasy belongs to the realms of fantasy. At the moment of firing, the Air India aircraft was well beyond the range of a book tailor. This means it was technically impossible to launch the book missile. In addition, the, radio, the radar echoes make it impossible that the book missile's onboard receiver picked up a signal from H-17 while already in flight. The book tailor's radar would have been emitting continuous signals at a 10 degree angle to the east towards the Air India aircraft, its supposed original target. Because the MH17 was at that moment approaching in another direction, that is say from the northwest, these signals cannot have reached the MH17 and been reflected by the MH17. The court further doubts whether a book missile launched in an easterly direction is manoeuvrable enough to make a U-turn while in flight, as it would have had to do in order to strike the MH17. The court, however, sees no need to investigate this further for the technical reasons already discussed, which already exclude this scenario. The court also considers irrelevant and thus needless to hear this American Bureau's rapporteurs as experts because its reports are implausible and unconvincing. This conditional request is therefore declined by the court. The MH17 was therefore shot down by a book missile launched at the MH17 from a book tailor in an agricultural field near Pervomysky. We now move on to consider the defendant's role and the legal interpretation of that. The court has used a large number of intercepted phone calls to ascertain events in the days preceding the MH17 crash in East Ukraine. Extensive investigation into the authenticity and genuineness of these telephone calls give no reason to suppose that the material is not authentic and not genuine. Investigations have also conclusively established who is involved in the phone calls. The court therefore concludes on the basis of this investigation that all the intercepted phone calls used in evidence 
were made by the defendants using the numbers attributed to them, and that these conversations are authentic and have not been manipulated. The case file, in addition, contains a large amount of photograph and video material. This visual material has, as I already said, been scrutinized with regard to its genuineness and authenticity, but also to establish the time and place of the details, time and place of the events shown by the material. In a number of cases, the image maker or other persons who were present when the recording was made were interviewed. Wherever possible, the recording device itself was investigated. The court also gave its own instructions for further expert investigations. In addition, a video of a self-propelled Bukhtela in Stejne and a photograph of a Bukhtela on a trailer in Donetsk. This investigation found no evidence of manipulation. In his judgment, the court describes a great deal of telephone and image material and concludes from them regarding the defender's actions and roles. The court, for example, finds it in the night from the 16th to 17th of July 2014, DPR Striders launched a book tailor from a button brought a book tailor from the Russian Federation. This type of anti-aircraft artillery had been needed for some time. Following heavy fighting on the 16th of July 2014, in which the DPR suffered major losses and was unable to defend itself against aerial attack. This system was very welcome. The book tailor delivered in the night and early morning was sent on from Donetsk to the front line using the corridor between Snezhne and the border with the Russian Federation to the south. In the afternoon of the 17th of July 2014, the book tailor was deployed in DPR-occupied territory near Povomaisky and used in their conflict against the Ukrainian army. It is a result of that deployment that the MH17 was downed with fatal consequences. After it became clear that this disaster had been caused by the use of a book tailor, it was swiftly returned to the Russian Federation in the hope of averting an international outcry. The evidence clearly shows that the book tailor arrived on the initiative of defendant Dubinsky and that the transport of the book tailor to and from the launch site was organized and carried out under his direct authority. The transport also directly and actively involved defendant Karchensko, who supplied and supervised the escort for the book tailor from Donetsk to Pervomaisky. Karchensko also swore that the book tailor was guarded and protected at his final launch site. The escorting and guiding and guarding the book tailor en route to the its final location and after arrival makes an essential contribution to the deployment of the book tailor. Defendant Pulatov was informed by Dubinsky that the book tailor had arrived. Defendant Pulatov met Defendant Karchenko, who was escorting the book tailor on the 17th of July 2014, met on, on near the Bushet in Sijne and saw the book tailor himself. The deployment of the book tailor took place as part of the fighting to the south of Snezhne on the 17th of July 2014 and the following days.
This fighting sought to open a corridor to the Russian Federation in the area. Defendant Prudatov, acting on Dubinsky's orders, had reconnoitred the corridor and had a coordinating role in opening and defending it. On the 17th of July 2014, Defendant Pulatov was busy performing his duties regarding the corridor. Defendant Gekin was the military leader of the DPR in the months prior to the 17th of July 2014 and thereafter as Minister of Defence. He was responsible for building up and deploying the military arsenal and for the use of DPR troops. He led the fighting against the Ukrainian army, consulted with his commanders on the ground and gave them specific strategic orders. He carried out talks with the LPR and with the authorities in Moscow. And he requested Mos Moscow's help for and during the fighting. The court finds that the case file does not make it possible to establish how the Book Taylor crew acted when the Book missile was fired on the MH17. The file also does not reveal who gave the order to launch the missile and why. But even without this specific knowledge, much can be said about the fact that the Book Taylor was deployed, and that is very important for the court's deliberations. A book weapon system is largely intended for downing aircraft. The court itself saw the weapon's enormous destructive power and its consequences at the inspection. The possibility of anybody aboard the aircraft surviving a book missile strike is zero. Everyone in possession of such a specialized and expensive weapon like the book tailor will be fully aware of that. In the target acquisition process prior to launching a book tailor, first you identify a target, next the target is checked and the decision is made whether to launch a missile at it or not. These steps and decisions are not only due to the way a book tailor works in technical terms but are also required in warfare under international humanitarian law. And one thing to be considered here is whether the use of the weapon could harm any objects or victims other than the target. It may then be decided to abandon or cancel the use of the weapon. For example, if it, is, if it becomes clear that the target is in fact a civil aircraft. A book tailor also requires highly trained crew to operate it. And it can't be used off the cuff. Its deployment must be prepared, and this includes identifying where it can be used and transporting it there. Making the system ready and actually launching a missile happen according to a set process. This consists of many steps, which means that a book missile cannot be launched by mistake, nor in the heat of the moment. It must be carefully thought through according to a set procedure
based on its technical requirements. The court therefore concludes that the missile was fired at its target deliberately and after some consideration. In the view of the properties of the weapon and the target it was aimed at, it is crystal clear what the consequences of the attack will be. That is to say, downing the aircraft and causing the death of all persons aboard it. The court takes the view that everything indicates that the book missile was launched deliberately, but that they believed that it was a military aircraft rather than a civil one. It therefore must have been done in error. Such an error does not, however, detract from the premeditated intent. Here it is important that the defendants do not enjoy combat in combatant immunity and were therefore no more entitled to shoot at any type of aircraft than any other citizen, not even a military aircraft, and thus killing the military personnel aboard. This is a criminal act. The criminal act of downing an aircraft and killing the persons aboard was therefore part of the plan from the first. What does this mean when we assess the actions with which the defendants are charged? The court first finds that there is no evidence that the defendants constituted a close-knit criminal gang specifically intending to down Ukrainian aircraft, as prosecution alleges. That, therefore, cannot justify any criminal responsibility on the part of the defendants. For that reason, the court has looked further at the defendants' actual deeds. The court first examined whether each defendant in turn could be regarded as a co-perpetrator by making his own contribution to the deployment of the book tailor, and whether he, this was sufficiently important and whether he worked consciously and closely with other persons. If that is not the case, then the court next assessed whether the defendant could nevertheless be held responsible for other persons' contribution to the deployment. This last concept is known as functional co-perpetrator. The Supreme Court's case law has defined a number of conditions for functional co-perpetration. In brief, what it amounts to is that firstly, it must be proved that the defendant knows that a crime is about to be committed, or usually so accepts. Secondly, it must be established that the defendant is in a position to decide whether or not the crime goes ahead. In other words, whether he has any authority to proceed or prevent it. The court's approach hereby is the inverse of the prosecution's. The court deems it best to first assess the defendant's specific contribution to the crime, if any. Only if it concludes that an individual cannot be considered perpetrator or co-perpetrator does the court consider whether the defendant can be considered a functional co-perpetrator because he is responsible for another person's actions. So much for the judicial framework. The court will now assess the defendant's actions in the light of that framework. Karchenko had received orders from his hierarchical superior Dubinsky to transport 
escort and guard the booktailer. As far as its final launch site near Pervomaisky, Karchenko obeyed these orders, which involved ordering his subordinates to carry the duties out. Later, he told Dubinsky that the booktailer had been deployed successfully and was safe. In addition, he carried out the booktailer's removal, again on Dubinsky's order. The court sees Garchenko in a leadership position in essential actions contributing to the actual book missile launch. He was involved beforehand and also arranged the booktailer's return to the Russian Federation, and these are substantial contribution to the booktailer's eventual deployment at the launch site. Where Karchenko himself was involved in the, in the actions, he did so in close and conscious cooperation with other persons involved, including the crew. Karchenko is therefore to be considered a co-perpetrator of both charges. In reality, and in law, however, he is also criminally responsible for his subordinates' contribution to the deployment of the book tailor. Not only did he know about the plans to deploy the book tailor, but he also ordered his subordinates to make a meaningful contribution, in particular, escorting the book tailor, guarding the book tailor in the field, and afterwards removing the book tailor. The court has already qualified Karchenko's own contribution to the development of the book tailor as co-perpetration. The court will now assess whether his leadership of his subordinates qualify him as a functional co-perpetrator. The court therefore declares Karchenko's role as perpetrator under charges 1 and 2 to be proved. Dubinsky was highly placed with the DPR, and in the night of the 16th and early morning of the 17th of July 2014, he initiated and organized transporting the book Taylor to the, from the Russian Federation. On the 17th of July 2014, he was in charge of transporting the book Taylor to his launch site and guarding it. The execution of his instructions, he left to his subordinates. He gave them their orders and was therefore in a position of authority as a superior. The court considers this to be of such fundamental importance to the committing of the crime that it can be qualified as co-perpetration. Dubinsky was at least in close and conscious cooperation with Karchenko and the crew. And this is further confirmed by Dubinsky's actions regarding the book Taylor's removal after use. Dubinsky is therefore legally and convincingly proved to be co-perpetrator of charges one and two, convincingly and legally. At an operational level, Defendant Gherkin was the highest military leader of the DPR, meaning he had the final responsibility for the deployment of military means by and for the DPR. Intercepted phone conversations show that Gherkin was in regular contact with Moscow about materiel and getting concrete military support, including air defense systems and trained specialists, in order to keep Eastern Ukraine.
The only possible purpose of this was actually using those systems in combat for the DPR. That that is what happened is clear from the file. Under the authority of Gherkin, as the highest military leader, a lot of combat took place in which people were killed or injured and in which material damage was done. Part of that was also shooting at planes and helicopters, which repeatedly led to crashes. Because of his position, it is very plausible, um, but the evidence doesn't show that Gurkha knew about the availability of the book tailor on the 17th of July 2014 before it was fired. No individual and active contribution to that on Gurkha's part can be established, so he is not a co-perpetrator in the traditional sense of the word. But Gurkha was kept abreast of what was happening with the fighting around the corridor, and he gave commands in connection with it. For example, he gave instructions with regards to the supply and positioning of tanks, and he determined who was in command. However, Gherkin didn't talk about a book or its deployment on the phone. As the ranking military commander, Gherkin did have the possibility of deciding uh, to deploy a book tailor or not, and that control followed from his position as Minister of Defence, the hierarchical superior of Dubinsky and Kochenko. And it is also clear from the phone conversations held by Gherkin once it became clear that something had gone wrong with the deployment of the book tailor. Gherkin then actively became involved in the removal of the book tailor to the Russian Federation, gave the necessary orders and maintained contact by phone in order to be updated uh, about whether or not that actually happened. In addition, Fighting an armed conflict was an important means, and the means used under Gherkin's authority as highest military leader in order to realize the DPR's goals. Part of that armed struggle was the downing of aircraft. That the use of military means led to loss of life was a fact of which Gherkin was of course aware. And that was certainly also the case the deployment of air defense in order to bring down aircraft, something which had happened repeatedly before the 17th of July 2014. Though the file contains no proof that Gherkin on the 17th of July 2014 was aware of the availability of a book tailor, it is clear that Gherkin was certainly wont to accept a deployment uh, as that of the book Taylor on the 17th of July 2014 leading to deaths. The court deduces this from his role and high position, uh, from his request for proper air defence, and from the fact that Gherkin was aware of the use of military means with which several aircraft had already been downed leading to deaths and never acted to stop it and also from the fact that Gherkin, on and around the 17th of July 2014, was actively involved in the military uh, operations around in the corridor. And it is also clear from his actions after the fact. Rather than condemning its use, he actively works to make the evidence disappear as soon as possible, in order to avert an outcry he was apparently expecting. That is why the court considers it proven lawfully and beyond doubt that Gherkin had control over the use and deployment of the book Taylor and that he uh, was one to accept that, including the consequences of that deployment. 
Gherkin therefore qualifies as a functional perpetrator of these offences committed in co-perpetration. With regards to him, this leads to the same conclusion as for Kochenko and Dubinsky to wit, the principal charges under 102 for co-perpetration are considered to be proven lawfully and beyond doubt. Defendant Pulitov, in the relevant period, was an area commander in Snitchnan's surroundings. He had men under his command there, and it was his job to effect and maintain the aforementioned corridor. The court finds that that corridor was important for maintaining and strengthening the position of the DPR in the Donbass. Seen in that light, Pulatov, as a coordinator, had an important position and role in that part of the Donbass. The intercepted conversations just cited, considered jointly, show the uh, broader task of managing the corridor consisted, at the very least, of taking reception off and strategically positioning a number of tanks led by the Vostok Battalion and the uh, reception and positioning of the book Taylor. Because in the morning of 17th of July 2014, Dubinsky told Pulatov that Karchenko would bring a book Taylor to Pulatov, and Dubinsky told Pulatov where it was to be positioned, instructing him to coordinate all this. Shortly before that, Dubinsky had given Karchenko similar instructions when he told him he should take the book Taylor to Pevermaisky, and telling him it was his job to escort and guard the book Taylor. The file shows that Karchenko, after receiving these instructions from Dubinsky, did, in fact, start travelling to Snitchna with the book Taylor, where he had agreed to meet Polatov at the first shed. That conversation showed that in the early afternoon of the 17th of July 2014, an actual meeting took place between Kachenko and Polatov at the first shed in Snitchna. At the moment, Kachenko arrived there with the transport, including the book Taylor. However, the file does not show what happened at the first shed or was said there. It is clear that Kochenko, after this meeting, simply continued carrying out the instructions he'd already received from Dubinsky. The court, therefore, cannot determine that Kochenko continued on his travels to Pervomaisky on the instructions of Pulatov, because he had already been given these instructions by Dubinsky, who was the superior of both Kochenko and Pulatov. It is clear that Pulatov didn't stop Kochenko from continuing to execute his orders. It also follows from the evidence that Pulatov shortly after that meeting called and was called back by a phone number linked to the crew of the book Taylor. However, no actual contact is made. The court does not see this as evidence uh, of an active and even crucial involvement of Pulatov when it came to the execution of the orders given by Dubinsky, because those con phone conversations were never had. And in spite of everything, the instructions continue to be executed. So those failed contact attempts cannot have had a decisive influence on the instruction, or at least that is not something we can determine. The link the prosecution makes there between Pilatov and plane spotters, in our opinion, is speculative at best, 
and does not in any way justify the conclusion that it shows that Pilato was a key figure between, on the one hand, the intelligence branch of the DPR, and on the other hand, the crew of the book Taylor. Neither is there proof from which any coordinating on the part of Pulatov in the positioning, guarding or use of the book Taylor can be deduced. It is also clear that Pulatov was not near the firing site on or around the moment where the book Taylor was actually fired. The court therefore does not consider it proven lawfully and beyond doubt that uh, Pulatov made any individual contribution to the deployment of the book Taylor, so he cannot be considered a traditional co-perpetrator like Dubinsky and Kachenko. That leaves the question of whether the defendant Pulatov, like the defendant Gherkin, qualifies as a co-perpetrator in a functional sense. In that context, the court considers that it has been determined that the defendant Pulatov knew about the deployment of the book Taylor in the operation for which he had been designated the coordinator. In addition, there is no proof that uh, Pilatov objected to the arrival and the use of the book tailor from the moment he knew that the book tailor was available for the separatists and that it would be used in operations to do with the corridor. That is why the court believes that Pilatov can be said to have accepted the deployment of the book tailor, so the first requirement is therefore met. With regards to the second requirement, having control over the deployment of the book Taylor, the court finds that Pulatov had received specific instructions from Dubinsky to stay close to Bevermaisky in order to guard the book Taylor that was en route to him and to organize all that. However, as we've said, the instructions to escort the book Taylor to Bevermaisky and to guard it had already been given by Dubinsky to Kachenko as well, just before. And Kachenko actually executed these orders. He escorted the transport from Donetsk by a, a Snitchny to Pomaisky, and he arranged for it to be guarded there. So not only is there no indication that Pulatov's intervention contributed anything to the execution of the instructions given by Dubinsky to Kachenko, there is no indication either that he could have changed anything about it. Regardless of the exact hierarchical relationship between Pilatov and Kachenko on the 17th of July 2014, and uh, whether Pilatov in general could give orders to Kachenko, there is no indication that Pilatov had the authority to change or revoke the direct order given by uh, Dubinsky to Kachenko. His coordinating role in the military operation around the corridor does not put him above Dubinsky. The court therefore concludes that the control required for functional perpetratorship was lacking for Pulatov. In short, in the court's opinion, there is no proof that Pulatov made any actual individual contribution to the use of the book Taylor. Pulatov therefore bears no criminal Sorry, Pilato bears no criminal responsibility for the contribution of others to this deployment, so the conclusion is that Pilatov has to be acquitted of all of the charged variants of both offences. Pulatov's defence has made conditional requests for investigation, and a number of these requests have been discussed separately in this judgment, and in addition, the court considers with regards to the request not yet discussed, 
that those requests are no longer are not relevant or no longer relevant uh, in view of Pulatov's acquittal, meaning there is no further need for them. Those requests are therefore denied. The same goes for the um, demand for his imprisonment made by the prosecution. Defendants Gherkin, Dubinsky and Kochenko are found guilty. The court qualifies the facts declared proven in their cases as two or more offences arising from the co-perpetration of intentionally and unlawfully causing an airplane to crash, although this was likely to endanger the lives of others and people being killed as a result of it, and the co-perpetration of murder committed multiple times to wit 298 times. These are criminal offences for which the accused Gherkin, Dubinsky and Kachenko are punishable. That leads me to um, discussing the claims for compensation. The court has received 306 claims for compensation from relatives. The 304 claims submitted by the Council for Relatives concern compensation for moral damages exclusively. There were two claims that were submitted by the relatives themselves that, in addition to compensation for pain and suffering, also concerned compensation for material damages, to wit, for the loss of a laptop and compensation for travel costs to the crash site in the summer of 2014. The court finds, first of all, that in the case of Pulatov, the claims made by the injured parties are inadmissible in accordance with the law because Pulatov has been acquitted. The cases for the other three accused who have been convicted have been heard in absentia. The court is of the opinion that trial in absentia also applies to the claims submitted by the injured parties. And the court has the authority to rule on these claims. According to the uh, rules from what is called the Rome II Regulation, claims by injured parties arising from wrongful acts must be considered uh, pursuant to Ukrainian law. And pursuant to Ukrainian civil law in 2014, relatives had the right to compensation for emotional damages. In Dutch civil law, the right to compensation for emotional damages only applies if that damage was caused after the 1st of January 2019. The court finds that in the cases of Gerg, Dubinsky and Kachenko, this amendment to the law does not preclude the claims for compensation for emotional damages caused before the 1st of January 2019 from being admissible under Ukrainian law. Now that the accused, uh, Gherkin, Dubinsky and Kachenko, have been found guilty of both charges, both the wrongful act and culpability are a given under Ukrainian civil law. There can be no doubt that the wrongful acts of the accused are causally linked to the claims for moral damages by the relatives. All that is left is for the court to determine whether the nature and scope of the damages claimed can be awarded under Ukrainian law, in other words, the type of damage and the amount. According to Ukrainian law, both material and immaterial damages that have been directly suffered by the relatives of a deceased person are eligible for compensation. To be eligible for this compensation, 
the relative must be a member of the circle of entitled persons. This means the spouses or registered partners, so long as they are not of the same sex. It also includes the parents, adoptive parents, children and adopted children of the deceased, and the persons, including stepchildren, with whom the deceased lived and shared a household. Siblings who did not live with the victim are not eligible. On the 17th of July 2014, the injured parties were suddenly faced with the death of one or more loved ones as a result of the MH17 crash. It is incredibly hard to take for the injured parties that they must live with the ongoing uncertainty of what must have happened in the last moments in the aircraft and to what extent their relatives and loved ones were aware of their fate. Through the written victim impact statements and during the right to address the court, it was made very clear what parts the victims played in their families, their extended families, their communities, at school, in the gym, at work, or in their groups of friends. And how much they are still missed in the lives of those left behind. The court has included in its judgment 13 quotes by relatives about that loss and its consequences. Many of the injured parties suffer from persistent bereavement disorder, post-traumatic traumatic stress disorder or depression. The constant attention by the media has also contributed to this. In addition, it has been shown that having to repeatedly bury or cremate a loved one or loved one's remains can result in a feeling of unreality for the relatives, feeling as if it did not really happen, even while knowing full well that the loved one is no longer alive. Furthermore, this court finds that there are other circumstances that must be taken into consideration. For example, the inaccessibility of the crash site, not only for relatives to visit the place their loved ones died, but also for emergency workers. Flight MH17 crashed in a conflict area, and emergency workers were denied access to that area, which seriously hindered the recovery of the victims and their possessions. The bodies of victims were left out in the open for, for days, weeks, or even months, exposed to the elements. This all caused great uncertainty for the relatives, who could do nothing but wait helplessly in the hope that their loved ones and their possessions might be recovered and then repatriated and identified. This waiting to hear if a loved one might be found also caused a delay in the grieving process. In some cases, only a small part of a loved one's remains could even be recovered a bone of the hand, part of a leg, leg or a foot. In two cases, no part of the deceased loved one could be recovered at all. The explanation of the claims by the injured parties also shows that the accused's stance in the proceedings increased their suffering, besides denying that they played any part in the MH17 crash and the fact that they were not open and did not cooperate with the investigation. They also made a number of negative statements regarding 
the disaster. These are all aspects that play a part in considering the amount of compensation. In its consideration of the merits, the court has found that the scope of damages has been clearly uh, substantiated and this scope has not been challenged by the accused. The court therefore now only needs to consider whether these claims are unjust or unfounded. First and foremost, the court finds that the grief suffered by the injured parties can in no way be expressed in money. The amount claimed is within the bounds of Ukrainian compensatory practice as the court finds that the amounts claimed for moral damages are not unjust or unfounded. Therefore, the court does not concur with the prosecution's arguments that estimation of the moral damages should be based on the Dutch Emotional Damages Compensation Decree and a lower amount for compensation be considered than was claimed. The court therefore finds that the claimed emotional damages are fully admissible. The court will not apply the exclusion of partners of the same sex stipulated under Ukrainian law, as this exclusion contravenes laws against discrimination. The court will not include payments to third parties in the loss estimate of the claimed moral damages and will not subtract these amounts from the agreed amounts to be awarded. Under Ukrainian civil law, just as under Dutch civil law, siblings who did not live with the deceased are not eligible for compensation. For that reason, the counsel for relatives did not submit any such claims. During the hearings, the court observed, however, that many siblings were hurt by this ineligibility and felt they felt it was very unjust. It became painfully clear uh, that the lives of siblings were radically changed as a result of the disaster from the impact statements. The change was not only caused by the grief over the loss of a sibling, but also because of the new and more intense role they played, obviously taken on with love, but also out of necessity, in the care of their siblings' children or in the care of their own parents since a disaster. And this new or more intense role also means that they are more intensely confronted with the grief of these children or parents. Consequently, the court supports the call from the relatives to explicitly include the position of siblings who did not live together with the victim in the anticipated evaluation of the Emotional Damages Act. The claim for compensation for the lost laptop is not eligible under Ukrainian law and cannot be taken into consideration. Therefore, the relatives who submitted this claim therefore have no standing with respect to that part of the claim. The travel and accommodation expenses relating to the visit to the crash site claimed are eligible for compensation as funeral costs and the court finds these are not unjust or unfounded. This means that the court sentences the accused Gurken, Dubinsky and Karchenko severally to pay compensation to the injured parties totaling more than 60 million euros. The claimed statutory interest will also be awarded and the court will impose the compensation order to the accused for every awarded claim.
the considerations for the sentence to be imposed. First and foremost, the court states that persons other than the accused may be reproached for the separatists deploying and using a buck weapon system. Indeed, the weapon had to be provided to be deployed. The weapon had to be transported, guarded, and the actual deployment itself must have been planned and implemented. It is the view of the court that anyone who played a role in this bears moral responsibility, at least, for the consequences of the deployment of such a weapon. A weapon which, given its very nature, can cause the devastating result observed during the judicial inspection. That devastation, most importantly, led to the death of 298 people, men, women and children on board. In an instant, without warning, their lives and those of the loved ones seated next to them were cruelly ended. In that moment, these people were robbed of their life and future. The accounts of the relatives make only too clear how the victims were in the midst of life. Their lives were not yet over, or were even barely begun. And their futures could have held so much more. This future was cruelly snatched from them. And this threw the lives of their relatives out of kilter. Too. With great effect, it was made clear to the court how their lives were completely changed after the MH17 crash. There was life before the crash and life after it, as many of the relatives put it. The court considers that it's beyond the comprehension of any person how it was for the relatives to receive the message that their loved ones had died as a result of MH17 being downed and how it was to have to continue on after that. The consequences for many relatives have been unbelievably great. In some cases they've lost several children, grandchildren, parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters and other members of the family. In one fell swoop their lives changed in a terrible way, a situation that persists to this day and will continue forever. The court does not wish to fail to mention the impact that the crash has had on the local people of eastern Ukraine. They too were confronted with the awful consequences of the down of MH17 on 17 July 2014. Wreckage and people fell from the sky, in some cases literally through the roof of their homes. There was quite a delay before the victims and rashes began to be recovered and repatriated. This too must have been appalling for them. To this judgment day, no one has come forward to clarify who is responsible or are responsible for this tragedy. The insecurity about the cause of and the reasons why that led to this disaster continue to exist. It is highly frustrating for the relatives and actually it hampers them to cope with the loss. And once it became clear what had happened on the 17th of July 2014 
and the accused realized that a civil aircraft had been downed, causing hundreds of people to die, including dozens of children, all three of them actively engaged in outbound transport of the Bukhtela to the territory of the Russian Federation, from which the Bukhtela had originated earlier that day. It is clear that this was done to cover up what had happened, and that the DPR separatists were involved with support from the Russian Federation. This international scandal had to be prevented. And this conduct by the accused after downing MH17 further characterizes the acts of the accused negatively and aggravates the sentence to be imposed on them. Moreover, in its assessment, the court incorporated that none of the accused have contacted the JIT to make a statement that could have clarified what had actually happened. However, they did express themselves outside the courtroom and the fact that they are accused, but each of them have denied any engagement in this matter. Gurken repeatedly argued and suggested rather subjectively that the soldiers of DPR did not contribute to downing MH17, and furthermore, he keeps totally silent on all matters. He also expressed very painful comments on the passengers of the aircraft that are on the verge of being disrespectful. On various occasions, Dubinsky expressed that he was not involved in the disaster with MH17. He refutes any involvement and casts doubts on the result of the investigation by making unfounded comments about tampering with evidence and non-existent witnesses. This strongly contradicts what the court established with regards to the evidence that is available. All of the above considered by the court demonstrates that he must know better than that. Karchenko has indicated that in the relevant area no Bakhtela was present and that he never observed it. As such, he also refutes any involvement. This position also strongly contradicts many of the established facts by the court and the circumstances, and he knows better than that too. The attitude and position of the accused who only respond from a distance or dare to respond from a distance is held by the courts to be lacking any sense and to be disrespectful and unnecessarily hurtful to the relatives. This is why they cannot benefit from this with, re from this with regard to the level of the sentence to be imposed. In spite of the intentional contribution by the accused to intentionally downing MH17, knowing it would kill all of the occupants, a military aircraft that would have normally been the target would normally not have 298 occupants. And though downing a military aircraft was not allowed either, the court cannot ignore that downing a military aircraft in the context of the ongoing combat would indeed have a different impact from intentionally shooting a civil aircraft and intentionally killing 298 men, women and children that had nothing to do with the ongoing combat. And although the intent does not affect the seriousness of the charges of the, of the offence, it does indeed affect the seriousness of the charges. The court holds that the consequences of the offence are so severe and that the attitude by the accused are so detestable that 
a mere time prescribed prison sentence would not suffice. The investigation at the hearing did not reveal any facts or circumstances that the court must consider when imposing a sentence. However, the court does see a reason in its decision with regard to imposing sentences by mainly international probable, uh, tribunals, in particular to weigh the individual roles and positions of the accused when deciding an appropriate sentence. And this is why the court also addresses the various roles of the accused, their position and responsibilities within the DPR. In his capacity of Minister of Defence, Gherkin was the highest ranking operational officer in armed combat and as such responsible for his troops. Although it cannot be assessed that he knew about the deployment of this particular Bakhtela, it could be established that he did approve and support such practices of air defence as they took place under his responsibility. Dubinsky, as the commander, commanding officer, he was the one who can be seen as the co-coordinator and collaborating supervisor engaged in all activities of inbound and outbound transport and deployment of the weapon. He did not only have a high hierarchical position just below Gherkin, but he played a large role and as such he contributed largely to executing the offence. Kachenko is the one who, by executing the orders given by his commander, Dobinsky, who was most engaged in the actual execution of these acts that have been proven. In his turn, he also gave orders to his subordinates, and therefore, he hierarchically, he was part of the middle management. The court holds that the high hierarchical position and strong coordinating role that Dobinsky had in having the Bukhtela collected from the Russian border in the night of 17, from 17, 16 to 17 July 2014, and its direct employment that same day, as a consequence of which MA-17 was down, as well as his role in the outbound transport of the Bukhtela, can only be sentenced by a lifelong imprisonment. The court wondered whether the fact that it cannot be established that Gherkin had some knowledge of the deployment of this specific Bokhtela and did not specifically contribute whether that would mean that a maximum time prescribed prison sentence would suffice for him. However, the court holds that a time prescribed prison sentence would not do sufficient justice to the responsibility borne by Gherkin in his capacity of Minister of Defense and Supreme Commander and to deploy weapons in the conflict. For it has been established with regard to this specific deployment that Gherkin was not just used to accept such deployments, but even enabled these due to his contacts with the Russian Federation. Added to this, he was directly engaged in returning the Bukhtelar to the Russian Federation and actively contributed to that. The court wanted the same with regard to Karchenko, who had a lower hierarchical position and executed his task on orders of his commanding officer Dubinsky. However, the court also holds in his respect that a time prescribed prison sentence would not do enough justice to his direct and active engagement in the deployment during the entire operation, for he gave the orders to his troops so that the Bukhtila arrived at the firing site. And he was also personally directly engaged in its inbound and outbound transport and the guarding of the Bukhtela on the firing site. And the Bukhtela was taken away that very same evening under his direct command. His lower uh, rank does not counterbalance uh, 
uh, in spite of all that was considered above, that he should only be given a time prescribed sentence. The charges are too severe, and therefore we, the court will also impose a lifelong prison sentence to the accused Karchenko. Next, the question remains whether the reasonable term has been exceeded. The court holds that due to the relations between the criminal proceedings and the expeditious dealing with the criminal proceedings against Pulatov, the reasonable term has not been exceeded so much as to take into account in the level of sentence to be imposed. The court finally reminds what it has remarked in discussing the preliminary questions with regard to mentioning the names with personal details and displaying the photos of the accused during a press conference and the application published by the Public Prosecution Service. The court will now address the question what consequences such infringements should have for determining the sentence. And in doing so, the court considers to what extent the accused have stated to have been impacted by such breaches of procedural rule. Other than the accused Pulatov, the accused Gherkin, Dubinsky and Karchenko did not state that their interests have been harmed, let alone that they would have explained what interest would have been harmed. And in this circumstance, the court sees no reason to attach such weight to the breach of procedure rule that was also afflicted in their cases that this should mean that they should only be sentenced to time prescribed prison sentence instead of a lifelong sentence. The weight of the consequences of the violation in the present state of affairs is disproportionate to the very severe proven charges. In summary, the court holds the proven charges so severe and the consequences thereof so grave that it holds that only the highest possible prison sentence would be appropriate punishment in retaliation of what the accused did and what caused so much grief to so many victims and relatives. The court is aware that imposing these sentences cannot take away the pain and suffering, but does hope now that Today, exactly eight years and four months after the disaster, clarity has been provided about who is to blame. This may offer some relief to the relatives. All of the above leads to the conclusion that the court imposes a lifelong prison sentence to Gherkin, Dubinsky and Karchenko. In view of the proven charges, how severe they are, the imposed sentence and affront to the rule of law, the court orders imprisonment of the accused. The court acquits the accused Pulatov. The court refers to the text of the judgment for any additional decisions. In as far as these relate to the seizure, the public prosecution service will only execute these as soon as all the cases have become final. As such, the objects, including the reconstruction, will be available for further investigation as long as proceedings are ongoing. I will now um, conclude. As such, judgment has been pronounced in all cases and the criminal proceedings in first instance have been completed. As far as the law allows, appeal can be lodged against these judgments within 14 days. The judgment's text and the text read out now will be available later on the website of the judiciary.
This will always be the Dutch text. The text that was pronounced now will be available ultimately by tomorrow afternoon in English and Russian on the judiciary's website. The English version of the full judgment will be available in some weeks. And a Russian and an English translation of a brief account of the decision of the court will be available today on the website of the judiciary and on courtmh17.com. This ends this court session. The court will now leave the courtroom. Next, the live stream will be discontinued. Those present here are requested to follow instructions from the usher and the Royal Marshal's say to leave the courtroom quietly afterwards. Public prosecution, the defense and relatives councils will stay in the room to obtain a copy of the judgment from a court staff member. I thank you for your attention.